passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. In the early 1700s, perhaps the most influential American pastor and theologian lived. His name was Jonathan Edwards. And in the 1720s, Jonathan Edwards began working on a project that was started out in just his his personal journal uh, called The Resolutions. Many of you may be familiar with these resolutions. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, over the course of a few years, wrote down 70 different resolutions for his life. 70 different things that he committed to do to help him grow closer to God spiritually. Some of them were relatively short, such as resolution number 69, where he says this, Resolved, always to do that which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it. In other words, Edwards had known when he had seen other people acting in an admirable way, and he began to wonder, well, why didn't I do that? And he said, you know what, I'm going to resolve to do that every single day of my life. Whenever I see someone do something, I want to be the person that is already doing that same thing. Some of them were longer, like number 63. He says this, and this is old English, so bear with me here. Supposing that there was only one individual in the world who was properly a complete Christian, in all respect of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in their true luster and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, supposing all that, I resolve to act just as I would if I strove with all my might to be that one person. Edwards listed all of these resolutions as ways for him to grow closer to God in his relationship with God. And what he would do is he would reread them every single week. He didn't want them to just be words on a page, but he wanted, to be, uh, wanted them to actually have a, a grip on his heart and to actually transform the way that he lived. They're incredibly powerful, uh, relatively easy to read. I encourage you, if you have a chance, they're all found. You can find them all online and just probably take about half an hour, 45 minutes to read them. I'd encourage you to do so if you have the chance. Some of these resolutions were actually time-bound, or they were uh, focused on a specific situation, like number three, where he says this, Resolved, if ever I shall fall and grow dull, so as to neglect to keeping any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Edwards recognized that even he was susceptible to spiritual dry seasons. And so he set himself up with this resolution to say, every time that I find myself dull and then I come back to my senses, I'm going to repent of everything that I have done wrong. Number 24, resolved, whenever I do a conspicuously evil action to trace it back till I come to the original cause and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and pray with all my might against the original of it. Edwards wasn't just content with repenting of sin. He wanted to find the root cause of sin and repent of that as well. And over the course of the last few centuries, many Christians, after reading Edwards' resolutions, have aspired to do the same thing. They've written their own resolutions, and and they've uh, really tried to live by these different vows. See, that's another name for these resolutions. Vows. I love the idea of resolutions. 
I love the idea of, of resolve and committing ourselves to living for God in a certain way. But I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm just a little leery of vows. I'm a little hesitant to use that word because when I think of vows, oftentimes I think of manipulating God. Of bargaining with God and saying, you know what, God, if you do X, only then will I do Y. I think of stories from the Old Testament like Jephthah, who makes a rash vow before God and ends up sacrificing his daughter in response to that vow. If I'm honest, vows just plain scare me. I know it's primarily a personal issue more than anything else. After all, vows are seen in a positive light in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see that Paul makes vows and keeps vows, fulfilling the commitments that he has made to God. But it's important for us to recognize what a biblical vow is. What is a biblical vow? Or perhaps more relevant for our conversation today, how would one respond to the fulfillment of a vow? Or the next steps after fulfilling a commitment to God? In the Old Testament, one of the ways that you would do this was through making a peace offering. Over the last couple of weeks here at Crosswinds, we've been looking at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, and we've been looking at these different offerings that are mentioned here, and the ways that people would worship God through these different sacrifices. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the burnt offering, and we saw that this was the primary way for the people of Israel to enter into a right relationship with God once more. It was the only way for them to find a way to approach God, to be acceptable in God's sight. And what we saw was that this was a sacrifice of surrender. Last week, we looked at the grain offering. And we saw that the grain offering was a call for the people of Israel to remember the covenant. Remember the salvation that God had for them. Remember who God was and remember who they were as well. This morning, we turn to Leviticus chapter 3. And we look at the peace offering. If we were to sum up the peace offering in just a few short words, I think it would go something like this. The peace offering, very simply, is a gift of gratitude. The peace offering is a gift of gratitude. It was one of the ways that the people of the Old Testament would actually worship God through the offering of these peace offerings. And I think that's so appropriate for our season today, is it not? As we finish up with thanksgiving and we still are in this season uh, as we approach christmas of thanksgiving it's an appropriate sacrifice for us to look at so if you have a bible i invite you to open up to leviticus chapter 3 and be looking at the first few verses here leviticus 3 starting in verse 1 if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering if he offers an animal from the herd male or female He shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and on the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. 
It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We're just going to pause there for a few moments and just look at the way that the burnt, or the, excuse me, the peace offering was administered. And if you notice, as we read this, it's a, it's a passage that focuses a lot on function rather than on purpose. This was a instruction manual for the priests and the people of Israel, telling them this is how you were to perform the peace offering. And that's why there are so many details that are included here. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the burnt offering, you might notice that there are several similarities here between the burnt offering and the peace offering. Some of the similarities include the different animals that are, you were able to use. You could offer up a, uh, an animal from the herd, uh, cattle of some sort. You could offer up sheep. You could offer up goats. But notice what isn't included here. If you were with us, you notice that the peace offering doesn't include instructions for offering up small birds, for offering up turtle doves or pigeons. Notice also that it makes mention of uh, male and female animals, while in the burnt offering you were only able to offer up male animals. So what's going on here? What are these differences? And why do they matter? We'll come back to those in a few moments. But first, let's just look at the six steps of the peace offering. These are the six steps to presenting a peace offering. So first, you would present the animal that you were about to sacrifice. As you were presenting the animal to the priest, you would declare your intentions or why you were offering up this animal. Remember that this is a gift of gratitude. It's a sign of thanksgiving. And so you would oftentimes say what it is that you were thankful for or what was causing you to make this sacrifice. Many scholars believe that people would actually recite Psalm 100 when they were uh, making this sacrifice, saying this, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know the Lord. He is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. This was a gift of gratitude. And as you would present the animal, you would declare what you were grateful for. Second was association. Notice that as you would present the animal, you would lay your hand on the head of the animal. And this is a way of, of associating with this animal. Now, the purpose of this sacrifice is not primarily to restore relationship with God. It's not primarily atonement. Remember this theological word that refers to the restoration of relationship with God. But whenever blood is involved, there is a little bit of a hint of atonement. After all, Leviticus 17 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is in the blood that makes atonement by the life. As you would present the animal, you would associate yourself with this animal. Next would be the slaughter of the animal. Again, this is a very personal act of worship for the people. As they would be the ones who would actually kill the animal and present it to the priest. Next, we have the dispersion of the blood. 
as the animal was killed, the priest would take some of the blood and they would splatter it upon the altar as a way to cleanse the altar. Anytime that a person, a human, is entering into the uh, presence of God, reconciliation was necessary. And reconciliation could only take place through blood. From this comes the removal of the fat. As the person was killing the animal, they would begin to divide up the animal into very different parts. And this is uh, one of the biggest areas of disagreement with the burnt offering. If you were with us, you saw the burnt offering was a whole burnt offering. The entire animal was offered up on the altar. But here we see that only certain parts of the animal were offered up on the altar. Notice that it talks about the fat and the entrails. Why is that? Why is that the focus here? Today, when we talk about um, our feelings and our emotions, we oftentimes refer to the heart. This is why people will say, I have a broken heart, or my heart goes out to such and such, or that person has my heart. We say it because we metaphorically refer to the heart as the seat of emotion. We don't literally think that the uh, muscle in our body that is pumping blood is a source of emotion. But in the Old Testament, in ancient times, it wasn't the heart that was the, so- that was the seat of emotion. It was actually the kidneys and the liver. And so when someone would break your heart, you would say, you've broke my kidneys. When you would be with that person that you loved, you would say, they make my liver skip a beat. It was a seat of emotion in the Old Testament. And so if you look, that's why it's mentioned so often in the Bible, referring to these two different areas, is because that's where emotion came from in ancient times. And so by offering up these parts of the animal, offering up the liver and the kidneys, it was actually a symbolic way of saying the seat of emotions, my seat of emotions, the, the feelings that I feel belong to God. I am so passionate about being thankful to God that I am offering up the seat of emotions. That's why the focus is here on the removal of these areas. Next and finally, we see the burning of the fat and of the entrails. And a lot of times, people will see this prohibition uh, on the eating of fat. If you look at verse 17 here. It says this, it shall be a statute th- uh, forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you shall never, neither eat fat nor blood. A lot of people will say, well, this is one of the reasons why the Bible's true. After all, thousands of years before modern medicine, God was already telling us not to eat fat. And we'll say, you know what? God knew what he was talking about. And we'll look to it as a place to place our trust in the Bible. Sure. I'm okay with that, but that's not the primary focus of what Leviticus is saying here. In ancient times, they didn't eat a lot of meat. The meat that they did eat was very, very lean. And so the fat of the animal was the choicest part of the animal. And what God is saying here is that he's saying, you know what? If you're going to worship me, if you're going to sacrifice to me, you're going to give me the most precious part of the animal. You're not allowed to eat the fat. It belongs to me. The best is reserved for me. This is a challenge for the people of Israel. If we think about our own worship. 
Shouldn't it be a challenge for us too? That we should reserve the best of our own lives for God. That we should reserve those areas of our lives for God and say that they are off limits because they belong to God. As an act of worship. So the fat was burned on the altar. But what happened to the rest of the animal? Let's get into the purpose of the peace offering. I already mentioned that it talks, uh, I already mentioned that the peace offering was a gift of gratitude. To see that, we have to jump to Leviticus 7. Leviticus 7 talks a little bit more about the peace offering. And I think it's found in verses 12 through 18. Don't quote me on those specific verses. Um, But Leviticus 7 talks a little bit more about offering up different types of sacrifices. And spends a great deal of time looking at the peace offering. And what we see is that while part of the animal was offered up on the altar, the rest of it was actually used as food. The priests would receive a portion of the meat. In fact, they would receive the breast and the right thigh joint, and they would wave them before God. And this was their primary source of protein from a very practical standpoint. But the rest of the animal belonged to the person who offered it. The rest of the animal was given to the worshiper for food. But it wasn't just for themselves. They actually had to eat this food within just a day or two of making this animal sacrifice. And they were commanded to share this food with family and friends as a declaration of what they were grateful for. The peace offering was not just an offering. It certainly started that way, but it was even more so a feast, a time to celebrate. It was a party. That's why there's no mention of a dove or a pigeon being offered here, because that's not a lot of food for people to share, not a very good party there. That's why male and female animals are allowed to be sacrificed here because the emphasis is on the food. The emphasis is on the party, the feast that would take place after the offering. We're going to see different reasons for these offerings here in a moment. But I just want us to pause for a moment and just think about that. Just think about this response from the people of Israel. What a great response to gratitude, is it not? To not just silently thank God when we have something to be thankful for, but to actually invite people into our lives to celebrate what we are thankful for, what we are grateful for. One commentator compares the peace offering to Christmas and says this, Christmas meals are very often divorced from, Christmas wor- from Christian worship. Yet if we have remembered God's greatest gift to man at church, if we have praised him for Christ's coming, if we have pledged ourselves anew to his service, then there is a real place for a festive meal in which we can rejoice in his continuing presence, which first began began at Bethlehem. There's a reality in the church today, not just our church, but church in general, where there's a, there's a divorce, a, a separation between Christmas Eve when we celebrate the coming of Christ and 
Christmas meals as family. A lot of times we are more focused on Christmas Day on family reunions or the nostalgia of Christmas or remembering the past or even gifts that we don't celebrate Christmas Eve as a family. We don't express the gratitude of Christmas Eve together over a meal. And the peace offering provides a helpful balance to that. See, the peace offering was a feast, a celebration of what we have to be grateful for. But you might be wondering, where does the name peace come from? Many of you may be familiar with the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. You may have heard that before. Uh, This idea of peace in Hebrew is much deeper than our modern understanding of peace. Today, when we think of peace, we primarily refer to mental calm. We think of a lack of anxiety, or we think of a lack of violence, an end to violence. Shalom includes those things, but is far deeper than that. Shalom, this Hebrew idea of peace, refers to wholeness refers to completeness, to well-being in your life. It's focused more on a relationship than it is on an inner state. That's what is in view when, in Luke 2, the angels declare to uh, to the shepherds about Jesus' birth, peace on earth. It's not just referring to the end of violence, It's referring to the right relationship, this peace that now exists between God and man because of the coming of the kingdom of God. This is what is in view when Paul declares that the peace of God will rule in your hearts in Philippians 4. He's not just referring to a mental state. He's saying that the place where we have confidence, where we have contentment, is because we have a right relationship with God, that we are now whole because of God. This is peace. And that is the peace that is in view here in Leviticus chapter 3 and Leviticus chapter 7. See, the peace offering was a meal of gratitude, and they expressed this through fellowship with one another. They expressed this through right relationship, this peace, this shalom, both with God and with other people. It was truly a peace offering. You might be wondering, well, what were the reasons for offering up peace offerings? Leviticus 7, uh, again, tells us three different ways or three different opportunities to offer up a peace offering. So let's just look at a, a couple of these. Opportunity number one, you could offer up a peace offering to express gratitude if you had completed a vow. If you had completed a vow, then you were actually required to offer up a peace offering. Many of you may be familiar with 1 Samuel chapter 1 and the story of Hannah and Samuel. Hannah was a devout, wonderful, faithful follower of God, and yet she was without a child. For years, she prayed for a child. And one day, 
She's praying to God. She says, God, if you give me a child, I will dedicate him to you for his entire life. He will belong to you. She vows before God, and God answers her. God provides her with a son. And after weaning him, she brings him to God and offers him up. And he lives all of his life in service to God. First in the temple and then as a judge throughout Israel as Samuel. What we see is as she brings him, as she fulfills her vow, afterwards her family slaughters a bull as a part of the peace offering. As a part of this peace offering, they celebrate God's faithfulness as a part of this vow. See, that's the purpose of vows. It's not a way to twist God's arm. It's not a way for us to manipulate God. Instead, it's a conscious decision for us to seek more of God. This is why I like the connection with Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, because it's conscious decisions that we make to seek God more. What if every time Jonathan Edwards had had fulfilled one of his resolutions, he celebrated in the same way as a peace offering? That he would celebrate in gratitude to God's faithfulness with friends and family over a meal. For that matter, what if at the completion of every time you committed to God to do something, and every time you were successful at that, you would celebrate in the same way? Let's say you're terrible at reading the Bible. You want to get better at it. But you just can't. You don't know how. And so you decide, you know what? I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read the New Testament over the next three months or four months or five months or or whatever the time frame may be. You commit to do that. And you succeed at it. What if at the end of your time of commitment, you threw a feast, a party, a way to celebrate your gratitude to God for this newfound relationship that existed between you and God because you had been drawn closer to him, that you had entered into shalom, into peace with God through this time. What if you and your spouse decided to lead your children through Advent devotions for the first time this Advent season? And you succeeded. What if in the same way, in the same vein as the peace offering, you would celebrate by having a party, a party of gratitude to God for the newfound peace that exists in your own family and existed in your relationship with God? A corporate example. I think sometime in the future, God may be calling our church to a season of prayer and fasting for the future of our campus. As we seek to to figure out what God is calling us to do, and and part of that has to do with facilities, part of that just has to do with what is God calling us to do as a church, Um, if God is calling us to open up another campus, I feel like God may be calling us to a time of prayer and fasting. What if we committed as a church to a month, or maybe longer, a season of prayer? And fasting for God's will and seeking his face, and what if we succeeded? We were faithful in doing that. In response to that, we responded in the exact same way. After fulfilling our commitment to God, we had a feast, a party to celebrate with gratitude what God had revealed to us. 
how God had shown himself to us. That's the peace offering. One of the opportunities is in response to a fulfilled vow. Second opportunity, in response to answered prayer. In response to answered prayer. A second type of prayer offering, or a peace offering rather, that you see in Leviticus 7 is referred to as a thanksgiving offering. And it is referring to a, a way of giving thanks to God for answering a specific prayer of yours, a big prayer of yours. It was typically centered around two different areas of answered prayer. First, deliverance from enemies. And second, deliverance from sickness. I think it's faithful to the context. It's appropriate to extend this to refer to all answered prayer that God delivers to us, that God gives to us. What if, in response to your answered prayer, you responded and celebrated with a feast? You or a family member is diagnosed with cancer, and later you are declared cancer-free. What if you celebrated God's goodness? What if you celebrated God answering your prayers with a feast of gratitude? Letting everyone know that you were giving God the credit for your diagnosis and for your deliverance from that diagnosis. You or a family member or a friend uh, has returned from a, a season in the Middle East, a tour of duty. I've returned faithfully. God has answered your prayers. What if you would respond with a feast of gratitude? A friend or family member becomes a Christian. God has answered your prayers. What if you celebrated with a feast of gratitude? Countless more reasons. Different types of healing, financial provision, getting a job to pay for your bills, the birth of a child, a wedding anniversary, countless more. What if we celebrated God answering our prayers. That's the peace offering. I'm going to be honest. As I was studying this past week, and I was making this revelation, and God just kind of revealed this to me, and he revealed to me how many different times that I have missed a chance to celebrate his answers to prayer for big prayers in my life. Sure, I've thanked God my wife and I have, have thanked God just with our words. But what if we took the time to be intentional and celebrated with a feast at the birth of Silas? When we accepted this job, when I graduated from seminary, when Crystal had a successful heart surgery. Many opportunities that God answered prayers and we had chances to celebrate those with a party. That's the peace offering. And the third off opportunity that you had uh, to, to make a peace offering was, was simply this. Just as an overflow of gratitude. As an overflow of gratitude. Leviticus 7 describes the final type of peace offering as a free will offering. See, the other two types of offerings were premeditated. This was just a spontaneous offering of thanks. Of gratitude to God. There's no reason for this except overwhelming thankfulness for what God is doing in your life. And maybe you've been overwhelmed with that same sort of, gra that same sort of gratitude. 
Maybe in the middle of a service, as we've been singing the words of in Christ alone, where it says, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand until he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Or the words of come thou fount, where it says, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. What if in response to those times, we're overwhelmed with gratitude to God for what he has done for us. What if we responded spontaneously in the same way as a peace offering? What if we gave ourselves permission to invite people out to eat or invite people over to eat at our houses every now and then on Sundays as a response A spontaneous response to the gratitude that we feel to God for his goodness. That's the peace offering. You see, the peace offering was not just an excuse to have a feast. It was an intentional way for people to express their gratitude to God. It was an intentional way for them to express that gratitude to God to others as well. To show others just how grateful they were for what God was doing in their lives, for the way that their relationship had been made better through a commitment to him that had been fulfilled through the answer of prayers. Just overwhelming gratitude. Friends, we're missing the point. If we don't use these opportunities to show our gratefulness, to God and to others. The peace offering is a gift of gratitude. And so my challenge to you this morning is simply this. Share that gift with others. Share that gift of gratitude with others. If you have a Christmas meal coming up with family, then turn the attention of that meal from a family reunion to gratefulness for Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Wed together Christmas Eve and your Christmas meal. If God has answered your prayers, then celebrate it. If you've been faithful in fulfilling a commitment to God, then celebrate it. There are literally hundreds of different ways to respond to God in gratitude in the same way as the peace offering. In fact, in in just a few moments as we close, we're going to have a chance to live out one of those together here in a moment. We're going to celebrate communion. Uh, and, and oftentimes, communion can be seen as a relatively somber affair. It can be seen as a very serious thing, uh, and it is, certainly. After all, we are remembering the death of Christ. But at the same time that communion is somber, there's also a sense of communion as a way to express gratitude. To express thanksgiving to God for our relationship with him. You see, in the first century, communion looked a little different than it does today. It was a part of a meal that people would have together. It was called the love feast. It wasn't all that different than a church potluck. It was a time to express thanksgiving and gratitude to God for the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf. And to show and remind others of just how grateful we should be for that. So here in a few moments, as we partake in communion, 
I challenge you to have that same mindset. Yes, to think upon the death of Christ and remember it with reverence. But also, at the same time, look at this as a way to celebrate. Look at this as a way to express your gratitude. For the peace offering is a gift of gratitude, calling us to be thankful and express that thanksgiving to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for the peace offering. Thank you for what it means. I ask that you would help us to express that same thankfulness to you. God, help us to look for ways and opportunities to express our thanksgiving to you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.